I'm Gabby Joya, a second year at Oregon Health and Science University. I'm here today to speak with Dr. Rand, a former emergency medicine resident and current ICU fellow at OHSU. Dr. Rand has great insight and experience from both of these departments, and he's going to share with us how to best partner for handoffs between the emergency department and the critical care units. Dr. Rand, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks. It's uh, an honor to be here again. Uh, my role currently is the ICU fellow, and basically we're responsible for running the ICU. We're also responsible for consults coming from the ward, as well as the emergency department and other ICUs. And in general, uh, just think of us as if there's a sick patient in the hospital, we're either directly taking care of them or we're usually asked to help take care of them in some way. And you have a background in emergency medicine? Yeah, emergency medicine uh, was my residency. It's something I still love to this date. And I think it really has a good overlap with critical care. In fact, the reason why I wanted to do critical care after emergency is because I wanted to focus more on taking care of sick patients. And so why were you originally drawn to emergency medicine? As a medical student, I couldn't make up my mind. I really liked everything. Every rotation I was on, I was convinced that was going to be it. And I think partly because of that, just the breadth of medicine and my passion for all of it, I decided to pick emergency medicine. We get to see just a little bit about everything. And you have to know a fair amount of everything. The ED is kind of a madhouse. And I try and describe that to the residents or the other fellows who are in the ICU that don't really understand this. In the ED, you have so many responsibilities. And uh, it took me a while to figure this out as a resident, but I, I realized what my responsibilities were. And first and foremost, it's to resuscitate really sick patients. And then lastly, you have to be a resource adjudicator. You're the gatekeeper to this entire hospital. The ER physicians have enormous power. If they really want to, they can swamp the entire hospital. They can admit everybody or they could have been nobody. I mean, they become the gatekeeper of deciding who would actually benefit from a stay in the hospital and uh, who might not. And that's an incredibly difficult job. So how would you compare the emergency department and the ICU? The ICU, uh, we have the luxury of having a pre-selection before we even get to our patients. All of our patients are in the ICU because they have an ICU problem. They're really sick. They either need continued resuscitation or they need some sort of life support or just basic supportive care that can't be provided elsewhere. And so you get to really hone down a little bit more and not be distracted with the waiting room, with the pressures to move or empty your ward, but really focus on each individual patient, resuscitating them, understanding their problem, anticipating a disease course and formulating a plan that unlike the ER, does not have to take minutes to hours to act, but can take on the order of days to see true progress. The continuity portion that is very enjoyable, though, is being able to truly see the effects of the actions that you take. I know in ER, many times, you know, you're not quite sure what's going on. You think you know. You, you arrive at the best diagnosis you have at the time, and you enact a treatment plan. And often, you don't really see the results of this treatment plan. And you'd have to stock the chart two or three days later. Did that help? Did that hurt? Did I do the right thing? Did I make the right diagnosis? Did I miss something? And, and in the ICU, the benefit is 
Well, you're following your treatment and you get to see each thing help or hurt a patient. And there's tremendous learning in that. So describe for us how the emergency department and the ICU interact on a daily basis. The best way to answer that is is kind of split it up a little bit. Because I think there's many different reasons why the ICU gets consulted to the emergency department because the emergency department has different needs. Um, One of the most common reasons why we get consulted is for disposition. Uh, The emergency physician feels like the patient they have in front of them needs to go to the ICU or maybe doesn't need to go to the ICU, but they want to just run it by us first. And so we would aid in assessing the patient and formulating our assessment and plan which may or may not involve admitting to the ICU. And if so, then we would take over the care, write the admission orders, and get the patient transferred safely. It's very important that uh, myself and the ER physician have a conversation about what to do while they're still in the ER and what to do if they're there for a long time, how to continue good care for these patients. The other thing that we do and provide is we provide help with resuscitation. We are more than happy, in fact, we like to be called So we can come down and provide advanced care for our future patients. And so sometimes we get called down because someone's really sick and they they need help. And lastly, we get called um, sometimes for procedural help. In some places, the ED doc might not be comfortable with the tube thoracostomy or percutaneous chest tube for a pneumothorax or, for example, an introducer catheter. And in the ICU, we do a lot more of those. So sometimes we get called on those to help put those in, especially in not terribly emergent settings. So how often are you consulted during a shift? This varies quite a bit, and it varies depending on the hospital that you're in. My main hospital would be OHSU, and I'm probably down there two or three times a shift. For example, at the VA, I'm probably down there a little bit more often because we also admit to the CCU as well, probably four or five times. And then I've been out also in the community hospitals and we get called a little bit less there, probably two or three times there. But, you know, there are some days where it's just, you're, you basically never leave because it's just one of those days where there's just a lot of sick people. And are most of your consultations in person or over the phone? Um, I make it a point to see the patients that I get consulted on. So invariably, almost every consult turns into a in-person consult. It's just hard to synthesize all the data you would need without looking at a patient. And I make it a practice to see my patients. Having been on both sides of things, which criteria should emergency physicians consider when we're consulting ICU physicians about patients? Are there certain labs we should always have ordered? Are there certain medications that you recommend going ahead and starting Um, What kinds of things make it easier for you to do your job? That's a really good question. And it's a difficult question because while there are criterias, I don't think they're very helpful. Um, And I'd rather talk about things that make sense. So we'll we'll go through this in a way that makes sense. I mean, there are now criterias, especially with the sepsis guidelines that came out, you know, lactate greater than four goes to the ICU. But the ICU is not like a magical place where we have like a lactate machine and all the lactates greater than four, we can suddenly clear it. You know, that doesn't make any sense. The way you should think about the ICU is the ICU has two things in it. It has an ICU doctor and it has capabilities for one-to-one and one-to-two nursing. And how do you know if someone needs an ICU doctor? 
Well, then you got to understand what the expertise of an ICU doctor is over a hospitalist, a general surgeon, whatever primary service otherwise that they would go to. And where the ICU doctors have more expertise is that they're resuscitationists. So if you're in the ER and you are still actively resuscitating a patient and you're having trouble leaving that room for more than 15, 30 minutes at a time, they probably need an ICU doctor. Also, ICU doctors are really experts in respiratory failure. So if your patient is requiring respiratory support above just a simple face mask or nasal cannula, they probably need the ICU as well. If your patient needs true one-to-one or one-to-two nursing, then they need to go to the ICU. And so how do you know they need that? Well, the easiest way to figure that out is just ask your nurse. But general rules of thumbs, just so that people don't look at you like you're stupid and asking a really silly question, is if your patient is on a vasoactive drip that needs titration every 15 minutes, that's not going to fly on the ward. They're going to need one-to-one or one-to-two nursing. If your patient has altered mental status to the point where you need to suction their airway every hour, that person's not going to fly on the ward either. But there are certain conditions where the patient might not be that sick in front of you, but they have a high potential of dying minutes to hours. And those patients should also go to the ICU. What are some of the most common mistakes emergency physicians make when consulting the ICU? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake is probably resuscitation. Again, ED docs have so many roles and they have so many patients to look after, including those in the waiting room. Sometimes it's easy to start feeling like a triage doctor and acting like a triage doctor because you're just trying to efficiently move people as quickly as possible. And the biggest mistake is an ER physician sees a sick patient, identifies that they're very sick, calls the ICU, and moves on to the next patient. You need to start resuscitation. And you can call me anytime during that resuscitation, but you have to start the resuscitation. Well, sometimes the ER physicians forget that the therapies that they implement actually works. Um, and they forget to reassess. Because again, it's very easy to see a sick patient. That one needs to go to the ICU and call the ICU. That's very simple. But oftentimes, especially COPD or heart failure, you put them on BiPAP. You give them some NEBS or diuresis or afterload reduction. In half an hour to an hour, a lot of these patients don't need the BiPAP anymore. They've gotten better. You should pat yourself on the back. You have successfully resuscitated these patients, and they don't need the ICU anymore. Don't forget that your resuscitation actually works. Reassess. And your goal, and my goal when I'm in the ER, is always to try and make the dead people alive, the ICU players turn into ward players, the ward players turn into ops players, OBS players to turn into patients that could go home. That's your goal. Implement a treatment that can downgrade the level of care that they require going forward. I mean, intention to treat is a great statistical thing. Doesn't work in real life. You know, you write the orders, that's intention to treat, but whether or not they actually receive treatment, that's the X factor. And so oftentimes we just forget to swing by after 15 minutes. Oh, you guys couldn't get an IV. Well, now's the time for an IO or a central line. That frequently gets missed because you just get on this train of next patient, next patient, next patient. Are there any absolutes that you prefer um, during a consult in terms of which history you want to hear about, which exams you'd like to have be performed, or tests that have been run? 
there's not really any absolutes. I think every ICU doc has different preferences. I honestly don't care if none of the labs are back and this patient obviously needs to come to the ICU. I'm happy to come down and help out because everything is an evolving picture. I get that. Some other ICU doctors have stronger preferences for having all the labs back only because, again, they just want to make sure the resuscitation is complete. And you also have to understand an element that you guys don't see when you transfer to the ICU is there's definitely a delay in the transfer. And I'm talking about not just the actual moving the patients, but moving them there, getting them rehooked up, getting new IVs, getting blood. There's You kind of start back at square one. And it's extremely helpful for the ICU doctors if they have already seen or compiled a full picture of the patient in their head. That's where the reason for some of the other ICU doctors wanting all the labs back comes from. They really want to know well, are they anemic? Because, you know, you can't really tell that most of the time on your exam. And if so, they might want to add that type of cross. Like this kind of will delay things on their end if these things aren't back. But for me, I don't really care. I think if you got a really sick patient, perform your focus exam history physical, having labs back is more ideal, kind of puts your picture together, helps make sure you're not missing anything like severe hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, things that are very difficult to tell. And then, therefore, guides our resuscitation once we inherit them. How about in terms of medications? Is there anything that you prefer the emergency department to go ahead and administer before transporting a patient to the ICU? Yeah, any med that's necessary for the acute resuscitation of a patient should be started in the ED. And so fluids for septic patients should be started in the ER. I mean, that is Part of the reason why the Rivers trial was so successful, they basically moved sepsis from an ICU treatment plan to an ED treatment plan and saw profound benefits. Antibiotics should be administered in the ER. And I think there's really no reason to transfer someone hypotensive. So if they're hypotensive and you already gave them four, five, six liters of fluids, they're not responsive, the vasopressors should be started in the ER to keep them normotensive before they come up. You know, there are a couple meds that you probably shouldn't start in the ER though. A lot of times we fixate on on numbers. And one of the things that's actually quite dangerous to start bolusing just to fix a number would be just off the top of my head, insulin. A lot of times we see patients, their blood sugar is 800, but that's not really why they're coming to the ICU. They've got some other problems and their sympathetic response is driving their blood sugar to 800. And without thinking about it, oh, that's an abnormal number. Let's just give 10 units of IV insulin. That can drive the blood sugar down, sure. But what you're doing also is you're driving the potassium down. So sometimes this creates more problems than good. Focus on resuscitation and really get blood pressure normal, perfusion normal, antibiotics in before you move this patient. Could you share with us an example of a consult that you've had that wasn't quite up to standards and what was missing? If you're consulting me because your patient's sick, I am more than happy to help. I guess the, the frustrating consults are again, just the ones where the patient is not getting resuscitated and there's no progress made towards the patient's care. How about sharing an example of a great consult that you have and what went right? One example I could think of is there was a patient who was really sick with respiratory failure, also super agitated, and they also had a history of a very difficult airway. And usually, you know, the ER in some places will call anesthesia, In this place, they called us because they knew this person was going to come to us after intubation anyways, which is fantastic because I was happy to go down there and help and assist with this airway and see, well, one, what makes it difficult? Two, can I help with it? And then three, that would really help with 
the extubation plan going forward too. And that was great because having all that readiness there was helpful when this patient decompensated and proved to be a very difficult airway and needed, in the end, a retrograde intubation. So just having extra hands on board really helped smooth the process of resuscitation, get everybody on the same page, have everybody see the same patient, understand the same picture, and the handoff couldn't have been better. And lastly, I'm curious what advice you have for someone who's interested in becoming an emergency medicine doctor and how they can be the best partners to ICU physicians. I have great respect for emergency doctors. I think it's the hardest job in the entire hospital. And it goes under-recognized and underappreciated because, you know, every other service basically are looking at it as a pretest probability, right? Like we see the undifferentiated patient, we add some sort of order to it, and then we pass it off to the next physician. This makes us vulnerable to be critiqued by those same doctors, but the truth is that the ED docs provide an enormous service. So I totally understand if the workup isn't complete, if you don't fully understand what's going on. I totally trust the gut instinct of an emergency doctor. The one thing I will say, though, is that the hospitals, for some reason, is just getting more and more full. The ICUs also getting more and more full. And so we have to work together in triaging the appropriate patients and also being patient from the ER perspective when patients aren't getting beds and being more comfortable with continuing the resuscitation longer than you might otherwise have in the past. You might have to manage this ventilated patient for an hour or two before we can make that bed available to you. And that means you might have to write medicines for sedation, a propofol drip, all these things that you might not have been as comfortable about before. And then the other thing to that about the triage point is the list of medical diagnoses seems to get longer and longer, and the recommendations left and right seems to be more and more conservative. In light of that kind of atmosphere, it's very easy just to admit everybody to the ICU. The ICU is, is indeed probably the safest place because you have the most eyes for the patient. But doing that would really swamp the entire hospital system will dramatically delay the discharge of every single patient and ultimately make everybody's job, including the ER physician's job, harder because it'll backlog the entire system. Really try and focus on trying to get your dead patients alive, ICU patients to ward patients, ward patients to OBS patients, and odd patients home, and really focus on downgrading the level of care and expediting or progressing a patient's treatment plan. Thanks so much, Dr. Ran, for the fantastic insight from both points of view, the emergency department and intensive care unit. Happy New Year from all of us here at eMedCast.